Let's be seated. Well, Helen and I have really missed you, but I hadn't quite realized how much I missed you all until the choir sang that and you're all here. It's lovely to be back. I felt when they finished, and can it be, that we ought to have given the choir a round of applause. Don't you? I'm aware as I look up that there's lots of faces I recognize. Bless you all. There's some I don't recognize. Hallelujah. And there's some who aren't here. And the last two years have been hard, haven't they? It's almost two years since I last preached here at Methodist Central Hall. Uh, and I come back, and in a snapshot, you can see the first thing I want to say, and this is not the sermon, but it's part of the sermon, uh, is what a fantastic job looking on from a distance Tony and the team have done. And uh, in a particularly fraught time, this church and its witness in worship online using the expertises that we have both in the building in the congregation and particularly in the superintendent minister uh, have been a blessing to many people. Helen's mother has become an unofficial member of Methodist Central Hall Westminster (laughs) and she's not alone. So uh, many congratulations to you all. Uh, and uh, bless you in the continuing ministry of this place. As I said, it's uh, uh, the 6th of March was the last time I stood on this stage. Then we went into lockdown. So it's two years just over since I was last here in this building. But what a couple of years it's been for all of us. As individuals, as families, as communities, as nations, For the global family of humanity, what a couple of years. In May 2020, the COVID pandemic was relatively new. We received daily death counts on the news, to which in due course, after the marvelous and speedy arrival of vaccines, were added numbers of those who had received them. Remember that? First dose, second dose, boosters. We've lived through lockdowns and restrictions, and most of us have given up partying. (laughs) And today we're learning to live with COVID, but becoming increasingly aware, I think, of the continuing effect of it, whether that's on uh, NHS waiting lists, Uh, a rise in mental health, a rise in domestic violence occurrences, uh, the number of school pupils needing to catch up because they've lost uh, important input, etc., etc. And crucially, I guess now, we need to recognize that most of the world's population is still unvaccinated or at least offered the opportunity to be vaccinated. And that needs to become a a key objective of a global community and particularly in the wealthy West that can make that happen. And then over the last two years, major climate gatherings have taken place. 
Pledges have been made by umpteen governments. Scientists have researched and pronounced. And activists in Attenborough have warned about a climate emergency. Time is running out for us all in relation to life on this blue planet unless we change our ways in profound ways. And to those of us who have children and grandchildren, possibly great-grandchildren, and we consider the legacy that we are leaving, it's a sobering challenge. And then, in recent months, after decades of a cold peace in Europe, there has arisen an immoderate and immoral war as Putin's Russian army invades Ukraine. And most of the rest of the world, not least here in the UK, watches on with a mixture of incredulity, outrage and fear. In the past few weeks, millions of Ukrainians have left their flattened, violated homeland and become refugees, migrants, joining the tens of millions of others from many countries in recent years and decades, what the UN now describes as the sixth biggest population on the planet. For me, some of the most moving things in that torrid newsreels that we get daily has been the uh, way in which people speedily, particularly in Poland and Hungary and farther afield, received Ukrainian people fleeing. Offered sanctuary, support, shelter. What a pity that to date so relatively few people have been able to find a place here. We hope that improves. All that, two years. Dick Jones, my old college principal when I was at college in 1796, <laughs> died a few weeks ago uh, in his 90s. And I was privileged to say a few words at his Thanksgiving service in Nottingham. And just going to that service and seeing the pictures of him, sort of, you know, like people do now on a sort of reel of pictures, reminded me of when I was at college and he was my lecturer. And I remember to this day his pity summary of the doctrine of human nature. Never be surprised, he said, at the truly awful things human beings are capable of. And never be surprised at the truly wonderful things that human beings are capable of. So in the light of all this, uh, my sermon today is effectively a question. A question which actually is implicitly posed probably several thousand times in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. It's this. What kind of people are we going to be? Uh, as individuals, 
as families, as communities, as nations. And I know it's complicated. I know that we often feel powerless in the face of global pandemics and climate emergencies and wars and the rumors of wars and millions of displaced people all over the planet. What can we do, we say? What, what can we do? What effect can we have? And I'm reminded of that phrase in Romans 12 with all its lofty idealism. As far as it lies with you, writes Paul, live peaceably with all. So I turn briefly to the scriptures that uh, Marianne and Joyce read for us so well. One from the book of Revelation and the other from the New Testament lesser to the Philippians. Both of which I think speak into this question, what kind of people shall we be? I want to firstly look at that passage in Revelation and make several observations from it. To the church in Laodicea, Christ writing through the Apostle John, to the angels, interesting concept in each church, hope you've met the one here, writes this, I know your works or your deeds, and actually doesn't think much of them. How interesting, though, that that message begins, I know your works. Note, not I know your faith. Not note, I know what you believe and what you don't and whether it's right or wrong. Listen to some statements that uh, when I was a lecturer, I used to use uh, when doing, can you believe it, a whole year course on the early church in the first four centuries. Are they going to come up on the screen? Yeah, okay. It's a bit small, I'll read it for you. This uh, was Julian, uh, one of the uh, Roman emperors after um, the advent of the Christian, uh, Christian becoming a, Christianity becoming a licensed religion in the Roman Empire, Empire in the fourth century. Julian wanted to take uh, Christianity away again from the masses and basically revert to uh, a pagan panoply of gods. So this is not written by a Christian, this is written by an anti-Christian, okay? It is their, that is the Christians, it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretend holiness of their lives, remember he's an enemy, that have done most to increase their atheism. The impious Galileans, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Interesting comment on the early church. Or this one, uh, go further forward. Now I know that, I'm me. Yeah. Letter to Diognesus, uh, 150 years earlier. 
Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humankind, either in locality or in speech or in customs. For they dwell not somewhere in cities of their own, neither do they use some different language nor practice an extraordinary kind of life. While they live in cities of Greeks and barbarians and follow the native custom in dress and food and the other arrangements of life, yet the constitution of their own citizenship, which they set forth, is marvelous and confessly contradicts expectation. Keep going. They dwell in their own countries, but only as sojourners. Every foreign country is a fatherland to them and every fatherland is foreign. They find themselves in the flesh, and yet they live not after the flesh. Their existence is on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, and they surpass the laws in their own lives. War is waged against them, as aliens by the Jews, and persecution is carried on against them by Greeks. And yet those who hate them cannot tell the reason for their hostility. Now they're your great, 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 great grandparents in faith. I hope you're proud of them. They've chosen in a number of different contexts, some of them very difficult, to decide how to answer the question, what kind of people are we going to be? Now, that's not to say that when the angel says in the book of Revelation, I know your deeds, that they had no beliefs. Or, and I'm not saying that this morning, that beliefs are unimportant. Creeds and councils will come in time, but not when these things, words were being written. At some point in time, uh, sorry, at this point in time, we're not working out how many angels can dance on the point of a needle. It's the angel who is, giving, who is receiving the point, and it's the church that's getting the needle. See what I did there? This letter doesn't comment about their understanding of the atonement or the incarnation or the resurrection, or what proper, honorable, biblical Christian lifestyle is today. I'm sure they had views on all those things. But what Christ comments through the apostle is to these people is a comment not about their doctrine, but a comment about their discipleship. So in terms of our discipleship in a world like ours today what kind of people are we going to be secondly Christ tells them that their comfortable lives have numbed them from their real needs I am rich and need nothing, you say, but actually. Now, Laodicea was regarded a, a wealthy place with a good economy. But this text is heavy with irony. 
these comfortable believers are not rich in what really matters. Uh, In recent years, the Methodist Church in Brazil offered the British Methodist Church missionaries. I know because I was in the head office when they offered them. They even offered to pay for them. They're a poor church, they're a small church by comparison, but they believe that for all our riches here in Britain, all our resources as the sixth wealthiest nation on the planet, that we are poor. They have a saying in the Methodist church in Brazil. I love it. Every home a church, every church a mission, every member a tither. And they say that we in the West are poor in terms of many of the things that really matter. And I think they're probably right. It is, in, I'm trying to get the meaning of it. It is, says the writer to the church in Laodicea, it's, it's the importance that you Laodicean Christians allocate to your riches and your possessions that prevents you from being disciples of me. So in terms of our resources, of all kinds, intellect, talents, time, money, how do we regard them as ours or as given over in a world like it is today? What kind of people are we going to be? Thirdly, they tended to see suffering as the absence of God rather than see suffering for Christ's sake as normal and redemptive. That's what, if you read the the passage, and I'd have to spend far more time than we've got this morning, we could do a whole series on this passage. But that's what all this talk about refined gold, real riches, is about. This is what this thing about white robes, because it signals martyrs, people who have given their life and their all for the purposes of Christ. Uh, Bishop Edward Kagi, a person I've known for many, many years, is the United Methodist Bishop in the area that includes both Russia and Ukraine. They fall under his Episcopal area. We need to pray for him. And Methodist pastors in both countries, in both Russia and Ukraine, have met together as one family of Methodist Christian pastors for many years. A little bit like uh, in a week where changes have happened in Stormont and we wonder what the future of uh, leadership in uh, Northern Ireland will be. Rather like the Methodist Church in Ireland, which flatly refuses to see itself as two churches and therefore pastors both in Era and in 
Northern Ireland meet together wherever they're stationed as one group of Methodist pastors. That's what's happened historically in Russia and in Ukraine. And although these ministers cannot continue to physically meet at the moment, and you can only just begin to imagine what is going on in the different bodies of pastors, they belong together, they have online groups, and they do believe that they will meet again one day when they'll embrace and pray together in a fellowship and common commitment to Christ. And that's what their bishop prays for every day for them. Another story. I'll shut up in a minute, but not just yet. I've only got you this morning. Just a few days ago, Jude Levermore, one of our Methodist Connectional Team senior managers and one of my former colleagues, uh, was visiting Ukrainian refugees in Poland and posted on Facebook a time of worship where a group of Ukrainian refugees, Poles and Jude herself, sang Amazing Grace in what looks like someone's kitchen. And I wonder what it was like to be there and hearing some Ukrainians in a Polish kitchen sing "'Twas grace that kept me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." What am I saying? Well, you may wonder, what, what are you saying, Martin? What I'm saying is that the angel writing, uh, the, the letter to the angel of the Laodicean church is basically saying you look at all suffering as if God is not there. When in fact, suffering, commitment, love belong together. The more you love something or someone, when that's taken away, increases the depth of suffering. They belong together. And many Christian people and many people around the world, all over the world today, put up with a life and occurrences in their life that would quickly be beyond us. Taking us far beyond our own concerns and our own concerns are significant. And they do so with a faith and a hope and a power and a conviction that shames us. They suffer because they love and they yearn for peace and justice and righteousness. You, says the writer to the church at Laodicea, you don't understand that suffering inevitably comes from loving and caring for others. Therefore, you think you're all right, you think that you're rich and comfortable, but in fact, and there's this long list, in fact, you are wretched and you are naked and you are sick and you are ill and you are blind. 
Blind, I guess, to what God wants to do in the world and in them. Therefore, in a sense, the Laodiceans, like so many of us today, you can't see straight. You see, the fundamental issue, says Christ to the believers, is that you are too self-absorbed. Now, in terms of our actions and our commitments and our openness to God, are we too self-absorbed? What kind of people shall we be? Therefore, says the risen Christ, I spit you out of my mouth. And we're meant to understand there, this is Biblical Studies 101, we're meant to understand that in Laodicea, there was this kind of geezer thing uh, that was in the, in the town, in various places, and the water was always tepid, and in fact, it was probably quite smelly because it was one of those kind of, um, you know the things that smell of eggs, where they're volcanic and things like, like that. In other words, it's not really, you know, mountain spring water. And we went to, meant to understand, or somebody understands this, the context of Laodicea, and basically says, and tepid water, you just spit it out of your mouth. But wow, what an indictment of any Christian, any Christian congregation, any Christian denomination. An indictment that God who chooses to transform the world through a transformed people in a transforming community called the church can't do it. Why? Because God's loved, redeemed, rescued, commissioned people won't do it. What kind of people are we going to be? Therefore, I spit you out of my mouth. Well, it sounds like God's finished with us, doesn't it? But perhaps not, or at least not, perhaps not for always. Remember Genesis that it's the spit of God into dirt that first causes the mud that causes the substance into which God breathes and says this is not mud, it has become a living soul. And out of that uh, ancient story of creation, humanity is formed. So there's hope even for things that have been spit out of God's mouth. But as the passage continues with that Holman Hunt picture that's pretty terrible really, but has hung on every other vestry wall since 1870, we should have a picture of it. Uh, I, should have got, I should have mentioned this, shouldn't I, Tony? You know, the, the one with Jesus that looks like he's come out of Rick Wakeman's tour of Ye with Yes in 1974 with hair down here and this long cloak with a lantern and a door where there's a handle at the outside of the door but no handle on the inside of the door. You seen it? There is hope but it does require of us a choice. Behold I stand at the door and knock if and a choice 
made daily about every circumstance, every opportunity, every challenge. So to alter my little sermon title as I move to a close, what kind of people are we going to choose to be? Because there's no point in the New Testament, no theological point at all, where the notion of no choice is included in the act of faith. What I mean by that is that at each point, in every letter of the New Testament, in every story of Jesus, people have to respond or choose not to respond, and in choosing not to respond, have responded in a different way, if you see what I mean, to what's in front of them. Yes, no. Forward, backwards. Engagement, disengagement. Choice. Which brings us, as I close, to Philippians Because actually, God has not left us floundering around when issuing the challenge, what kind of people are you going to be? Instead, God has given us the model, the pattern, the perfect person, Jesus Christ, God's beloved son. In effect, God says, I'll tell you what kind of people I desire you to be. And then I've got to leave it to you to choose what kind of people you will be. And wonderfully, and this is the most important sentence of this sermon, so wake up a minute, Charlie. Just Wonderfully, God says, and I'll tell you what kind of people you can be. Because actually I've poured out the Holy Spirit on you and in you to help you and through you to help others. So what you choose to be, you can be resourced to be. I want, says God, in a sentence, I want you to be Jesus people. I want you to be like him. Read that passage from Philippians every day this week. Must close, it's getting late, and dinner beckons. (laughs) A few years ago, uh, a Methodist mission partner who'd served in Eastern Africa in several countries for nearly 30 years retired and then sadly died within months of retiring. And everybody was absolutely devastated. And at his funeral service in the UK, Uh, A Maasai woman came from East Africa to attend the service, and she spoke at the service. Resplendent in her ceremonial tribal dress, and she gave tribute to his life and ministry. And she ended her short tribute with this. He was known to everyone in the whole area, whether Christian or not, as Mr. Jesus Christ. Well, as eulogies go, it's not a bad one, is it? So today, with the world as it is, and when all's said and done, and when the pattern is before us, and the resources are available, 
What kind of people are we going to choose to be? Amen.